This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley Rubric to the classic film noir, Sunset Boulevard, starring William Holden and Gloria Swanson. However, quickly, before we get to the show, next week, we are starting our month of James Bond with the movie that birthed the franchise, Dr. No. Starring Sean Connery, Ursula Andress, Joseph Wiseman, and Jack Lord. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, or review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. With that, Dad, this has been our closing line all season, and it's one of old Hollywood's most beloved classics. So, what comes to mind when you think of Sunset Boulevard? How creepy Gloria Swanson is. Uh, yes. Although, I kind of grow a weird attachment to her the more times I watch this movie. But certainly the impression you get immediately upon entering the mansion is, what the fuck is this house? And then by the time you get to the monkey, you're like, okay, what is this movie? Yes. And they never really explain the chimp. Well, kind of they do with uh, William Holden discussing, you know, how this is like a, uh, a child or something. I mean, old Hollywood was a, was an, it was a time of extremes especially in the 20s where the economy was booming and Wall Street was going berserk and everything was going. And the silent film stars had more money than they knew what to do with and were just uh, American royalty. Really? Because I I know that she throws around obscene amounts of money. They, They talk about the fact that this house is just enormous, has nine master bedrooms with, I'm assuming, bathrooms in them. And that, uh, I mean, this thing is just a, a palace among palaces. Not to mention that she has continuing streams, real estate downtown and oil reserves and all these other places that she's divested in. I thought that was the source of a continuing route of money. Where the hell did she get all the money to begin with and why does she just have it to throw around? I guess maybe I just clearly don't understand the, the silent film era stars as form of wealth or payment. And I think that's a big entry point for this movie because guaranteed most people my age are not going to be familiar with silent film era 
silent film stars and definitely not their wealth. Well, they made a lot of money because they, well, what what really started it was when Chaplin, Douglas Furbanks, Sr. and Mary Pickford ran out their contracts with their studios and started their own studio and controlled their own films. And so their studio that they started is still in existence today, to some extent, United Artists. Which is a subsidiary of MGM, which is now a subsidiary of Amazon. Yes. But at the time, that started a trend that uh, uh, many of the big stars did themselves, which is either you started your own studio to control your product or you produced your own films. Harold Lloyd produced his own films. Valentino was paid astronomical sums while he was alive. But all of those, William S. Hart, I think, produced his own. So all of the silent stars of the 20s controlled a huge amount of their, of their, uh, their movies and the money that was generated from them. And so they were just rolling in dough. People just absolutely loved the films even though they were silent films. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's certainly not anything that I would have known had it not been for this movie. I'm sure we're going to get into more of that as we go through the scoring, but let's start where we normally do. What is your relationship, if any, to this movie? Well, <laughs> uh, I could go back, which is Gloria Swanson had a kind of a resurgence in her career after this film in the 50s and 60s. She did a lot of Broadway acting and such, but she did a lot of guest stars. And I remember seeing her on the Beverly Hillbillies, where she they did a silent film because they thought she was destitute. And so they were going to... Jed Clampett and the Beverly Hillbillies owned a studio. And so he decided he was going to do a silent picture. And she's like, well, where do you show a silent picture? And she goes, I don't know, the Bijou Theater and Bug Tussle, which is like what they always talked about. Anyway, so that was where I first became familiar with her. And I'd always heard or knew about the film, but I'd never seen it until, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Okay. Yeah, that's probably around where my timeline is. So I don't know if I've disclosed this on the show. I probably have, but... I can't remember it, that I've had a personal project for, gosh, I think it's going on six years now, to watch all Best Picture winners ever and every one of the AFI Top 100 from both the 1998 and 2007 lists. And as I'll disclose here in a minute, it made both lists. So this was high up on the movie scale of ones I needed to see, and I knew that at some point I was going to have to watch it. But I do distinctly remember the first time I watched it, I got about to the monkey scene and I'm like, this is too freaking weird for me. And so I was out for a while. Like I, I quite literally turned it off. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> so I had to go back and rewatch it at, at a different point. I think it, it does present you with such a striking amount of alarmism the first time that you get to that point. It is. It is very striking. It is extremely well done. I think it is an homage to a period in Hollywood. 
you know, and you see this. Now, it's not just Hollywood. This is the way it is in, in the NFL, professional football, where it's like pre-1960 or pre-merger. It's like this, it's like two separate entities. And Hollywood is almost the same way. You have two separate entities, talking film stars and silent film stars. And very few actually made the transition effectively. And as a result, it was kind of like all of these stars were so popular and huge and big and and beloved and wealthy and powerful. And then they didn't make the transition to, to uh, talking films and what ended up happening to them. You know, a lot of them just became recluses and uh, and were cast off by Hollywood. I know this is covered in The Artist, which we already did on this program. Not with you, but was part of it. And Singing in the Rain also takes advantage of this period of time effectively. I don't recall too many other movies that make this such a focus. I know that Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood or movies about making movies, but... This might be the only one, and I heard this described, so I'm going to borrow the term, the classic about Hollywood horror film. And so, recent guest, Hellbent for Horror, I decided to uh, tweet to them earlier this week. I, I started to look at this in a different light once I considered, is this kind of a horror film in the way that it's structured? It can be. <laughs> and unfortunately... The, the villain or the horror or the monster or whatever the protagonist is the fickle nature of society, which is they moved on. Silent or talking pictures came. Silent stars were blasé. They were done. And people moved on and they were left abandoned. And I think that's what makes this movie enduring is that more than ever do we have people with 10 seconds of fame yes and making personal brands that shift the magnitude you have a bunch of attention one day and it's gone the next and what could be today's youtube star is tomorrow's canceled person or forgotten reality tv show person william hung yeah <laughs> she bang she bang well and that's only the tip of the iceberg when it was virality early on in the age of the internet i actually think there is something quite prescient about the entirety of the film if you examine it through that lens and i do think that it's added upon that even through the structure that they have yes joe gillis is a little bit older but he takes on kind of the median point i know that the juxtaposition between him and Gloria Swanson is supposed to be he is the up-and-comer. So it kind of takes on the avenue of a star is born, but it's not really because Gillis never becomes a star. And she's not helping promote him becoming a star. She's trapping him for the companionship of her return, not comeback. Don't want to use that word. But the aging starlet, the struggling writer and then you get the wide-eyed naivete person who wants to break into even though she is multiple generation hollywood nancy olsen playing betty 
in it is a bizarre thought process, but it's almost as if she is sucking the youth out of him for her benefit. It's an interesting thought I hadn't considered. Certainly, I think that would make it much more apt as a horror film. All right, let's give everybody some context for this and not belabor the point. Do you have your plot summary ready? I do. Joe Gillis, played by William Holden, a down-on-his-luck screenplay writer, cannot pay his bills and fails to sell an idea for a script. Fleeing creditors, Joe ends up at a mansion, soon recognizing the owner as a forgotten silent film star, Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson. Learning that Joe is a writer, Norma soon has Joe working for her, and he moves into Norma's mansion at her insistence. Aided by her butler, Max, played by Eric von Stroheim, Joe gradually accepts his dependent situation as Norma lavishes attention on Joe and buys him expensive things. However, after Joe starts to work on a screenplay with Betty Schaefer, played by Nancy Olson, Norma discovers a manuscript with their names on it, and she phones Betty, insinuating that Joe is not the man he seems. But nothing is as it seems to be, including reality. Thank you. Cast for this movie, William Holden as Joe Gillis, Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond, Eric von Stroheim as Max von Meyerling, Nancy Olson as Betty Schaefer, Fred Clark as Sheldrake, the film producer, Lloyd Goh as... Marino, Joe's agent, Jack Webb as Artie Green, Cecil B. DeMille as himself, Hedda Hopper as herself, Sidney Skolsky as himself, Buster Keaton as himself, Anna Q. Nilsson as herself, and H.B. Warner as himself. Recognition for this movie. It was nominated for Best Picture, Director for Billy Wilder, Actor for William Holden, Actress for Gloria Swanson, Supporting Actor Eric Von Stroheim, Supporting Actors for Nancy Olsen, Film Editing and Cinematography. It ended up winning for Best Original Screenplay for Billy Wilder, Art Direction in Black and White, and Score. At the time, its 11 Oscar nominations were exceeded only by the 14 received by All About Eve, which won six awards, including Best Picture and Director. It was number 12 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies in 1998. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, was the number 7 quote and... I am big, it's the pictures that got small, number 24 on AFI's 100 Years 100 movie quotes in 2005. It was number 16 on AFI's 100 Years of Film Scores in 2005, and number 16 on AFI's 100 Years 100 movies, 10th Anniversary Edition in 2007. The Village Voice ranked the film at number 43 in its top 250 best films of the century list in 1999, based on polls of critics. The film was also included in the New York Times' Guide to the Best 1,000 Movies Ever Made in 2002. In January 2002, the film was voted at number 87 on the list of top 100 essential films of all time by the National Society of Film Critics. Sunset Boulevard received 33 votes in the British Film Institute's 2012 Sight and Sound polls, making it the 63rd greatest film of all time in the Critics' Poll and 67th in the Directors' Poll. In the earlier 2002 sight and sound polls, the film ranked 12th among directors. The Writers Guild of America ranked the film's screenplay by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder and D.M. Marshman Jr., the seventh greatest ever. In a 2015 poll by the BBC Culture, film critics ranked Sunset Boulevard the 54th greatest American film of all time. 
1999, Roger Ebert praised the acting of William Holden and Von Stroheim and has described Swanson's as, quote, one of the all-time greatest performances. He says Sunset Boulevard, quote, remains the best drama ever made about the movies because it sees through the illusions. Ebert gave the film four stars out of four and included it in his great movies list. Pauline Kael described the film as, quote, almost too clever, but at its best in its cleverness, and also wrote that it was common to, quote, hear Billy Wilder called the world's greatest director, end quote. When Wilder died in 2002, Obituary singled out Sunset Boulevard for comment, describing it as one of his most significant works along with Double Indemnity from 1944 and Some Like It Hot from 1959. You can listen to that episode as our number six going back to last year. And it was finally inducted into the Library of Congress in 1989. Did you know? Unlike the character she played, Gloria Swanson had accepted the fact that the movies didn't want her anymore and had moved to New York, where she worked on radio and later television. Although she had long before ruled out the possibility of a movie comeback, she was nevertheless highly intrigued when she got the offer to play the lead. Did you know? Gloria Swanson almost considered rejecting the role of Norma Desmond after Billy Wilder requested she do a screen test for the role. Her friend George Cukor, who initially recommended her for the part, told her, If they want you to do 10 screen tests, do 10 screen tests. If you don't, I will personally shoot you. Swanson agreed to the audition and won the role. Did you know? According to Gloria Swanson's daughter, Michelle Amon, her mother stayed in character throughout the entire shoot, even speaking like Norma Desmond when she arrived home in the evening after filming. On the last day of shooting, Swanson drove back to the house she, her mother, and daughter shared during production, announcing, quote, There were only three of us in it now, meaning that Norma Desmond had taken her leave. Did you know? The name Norma Desmond was chosen from a combination of silent film star Norma Talmadge and silent movie director William Desmond Taylor whose still unsolved murder is one of the great scandals of Hollywood history. On the morning of February 1, 1922, Taylor, who had been romantically involved with her, was shot and killed in his Hollywood bungalow. His killer was never identified. Did you know? When Norma Desmond says to the guard at the Paramount Studio gates, without me there wouldn't be any Paramount Studio, the words could apply to Gloria Swanson herself, as she was the studio's top star for six years running. Did you know? Montgomery Clift quit the production because he was, like the character of Joe, having an affair with a wealthy middle-aged former actress, Libby Holman, and he was scared the press would start prying into his background. Did you know? As a practical joke, during the scene where William Holden and Nancy Olson kissed for the first time, Billy Wilder let them carry on for minutes without yelling cut. He'd already gotten the shot he needed on the first take. Eventually, it wasn't Wilder who shouted cut, but Holden's wife, artist, Brenda Marshall, who happened to be on the set that day. Did you know? Paramount was more than happy to be the subject of the film and didn't ask for the studio to be disguised. In fact, such was the buzz about the film during production that the viewing of the daily rushes became one of the hottest tickets on the lot. Did you know? The Desmond Mansion was located not on Sunset Boulevard, but at 641 South Irving Boulevard on the corner of Crenshaw and Irving. It was built in 1924 by William Jenkins, at a cost of around $250,000. Its second owner was John Paul Getty, who purchased it for his second wife. Mrs. Getty divorced her millionaire husband and received custody of the house. It was she who rented it to Paramount for the filming. The only addition was the swimming pool, which wasn't equipped with a means of circulating the water, so it was useless after filming. 
The pool was used in its empty condition in Rebel Without a Cause, 1955. The mansion was torn down in 1957, and a large office building for Getty Oil built on the site still stands upon the spot. Did you know? When crew members asked Billy Wilder how he was going to shoot the burial of Norma's monkey, one of the film's most bizarre scenes, he just said, you know, the usual monkey funeral sequence. <laughs> All right, so what is the elevator pitch for this movie? What happens to the cast-offs of old Hollywood? Very simple and yet profound. And I, you probably do more with that than I did with my much longer version. Struggling writer takes on the resurrection project for a burned-out starlet, but learns the cost of being too close to the spotlight. Uh, there's so much, so much in this film. Of course, you know, uh, for those who are not aware, Gloria Swanson had a long-term affair with Joseph Kennedy Sr., John Kennedy's uh, father. William Holden's best friend in Hollywood was one Ronald Reagan, and William Holden was best man at Ron and Nancy's wedding. It's There's a lot here uh, behind the scenes of this film and uh, of what was going on. Well, even from the amount of stars that appear as themselves, I mean, you have arguably one of the great directors of both the silent and the original talking picture age, Cecil B. DeMille. You have one of the greatest film stars of the silent era appearing as herself, and then Buster Keaton, I mean, just randomly as a cameo. This is not <laughs> yeah. that far removed. I mean, we think about it. This is 1950. And the silent film era ended 20 years previously. So quite literally, this would be the equivalent of, let's say, uh, Russell Crowe's gladiator being in a silent era and him attempting a comeback now. Yes, and actually after this happened, Buster Keaton had a resurgence. He did a lot of commercials, endorsements, cameos in other films. He had kind of a resurrection in his career. To be fair, I actually enjoy Keaton a little bit more than I do Chaplin, just personally. Well, my my favorite of that era still is uh, Harold Lloyd. I don't think I've seen any of his, but that'd be an interesting one to eventually get to. And I don't remember, but when I was back in high school, I just remembered on Sunday nights at 10 o'clock, and I can't remember if it was like WGN or somebody on the cable station at that time, played silent films and so you could watch a silent film with music in the in the 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 panels with the words and so i watched uh films of douglas fairbanks and mary pickford i watched harold lloyd and you know so and i watched butchster keaton of those films harold lloyd was my favorite because i thought he was incredibly funny and extremely gifted as an athlete. He did so many of his own stunts. I, I'm looking forward to at some point in time doing a Harold Lloyd film. But he didn't do such amazing stunts with such tiny feet. <laughs> yeah. I still treasure that picture of me lying right on that. <laughs> uh, at man's uh, saying that line. So anyway. Best performance for you. Gloria Swanson, she she was just absolutely mystifying as far as how incredibly just insane she appeared at times. 
she almost appears possessed. Well, I know that the way she had of cocking her head and looking down at everything and everyone, you know, where and, and she'd make her eyes really big, and you know, and it was like, oh my god, she just kind of wanted you. You wanted when you looked at her, wanted to actually just like flee. Well, and you you almost feel by watching her possessed by whatever she's got inside of her. There's like a, a demon soul just simply hoarding the space of the entire screen and you're viewing. I went with William Holden. I think this movie more than anything else, and you could, frankly, there's at least five different people you could single out for best performance. I, I could give one A, one B to the person I'm going to nominate for my best secondary, but I think that this movie really doesn't work without two very great starring leads. Now, I might be tempted to change mine to Swanson, but I'm going to give some attention to Holden because I think he's really good in this movie. I don't think that he's the only one that could have done Joe Gillis from the time. I actually think Montgomery Clift would have been a, a, it's a completely different role if he does it where he's much more vulnerable as opposed to Holden's aloofness that he always seems to play with. But I don't think that Swanson could have been played, or excuse me, Des- Norma Desmond could have been played by anybody other than Gloria Swanson. I think she so imbues the character, you cannot imagine anyone else in that role. But that being said, mine was Holden because he could have very easily been overacted by her and it ruins the film. The fact that he's able to compete with her and her lunacy and remain on the same page is a testament to the type of character and charisma he eventually had. But one thing you can say about William Holden is, is there was a certain arrogance, snideness, and cynicism about every character he played. That's more of a particular set of adjectives. I, I went with aloof, but yeah, it's the same sense. He's removed almost from the, the situation and looks above it. And especially in this particular movie, he does that a lot to Norma and thinks he's in control, but she's always controlling him. And I think that's part of the driving force of why this movie works. Well, and and, the, and I guess the reason I did not give Holden the best performance, and it's a film that I've seen and multiple times and really love, which I don't believe you've seen, which is another Holden Wilder collaboration, which is Stalag 17. No, I haven't seen that one, no. And and if you've seen Stalag 17, that is the epitome of Bill Holden being the cynical, snide, arrogant character that he portrays in so many films. So I guess, to me, knowing how he was in that film, where he won his Oscar for Best, or best Performance... I have a harder time giving him better than Gloria Swanson in this film. I think that's fair. The only caveat I would say is, is that I think he gives equally great performances in Bridge on the River Kwai and Network, for that matter, where he's in different stages of his life, but playing very much the same character. I think that when you needed a removed, arrogant, but not to the point of being off-putting actor, this was William Holden. Yes. 
So who is your best secondary? I had William Holden, but it was just barely above Eric uh, von Stromheim because I thought his character of Max was so well performed. So I'm just going to give him kudos and just mention well, him. Let's talk about him here for a second. I thought it was interesting. I did this in the research. I didn't include it in the notes. But apparently he was at one time a co-lead or director, much like it takes place in the film. But ironically, Gloria Swanson got him fired from the production. He didn't want to do this movie because he didn't want to work with her. But they offered him such an obscene amount of money to do the movie that he said yes. Yes, he, it was all financial. Because what had happened was is Gloria Swanson had started her own production company and it ended up being run by Joe Kennedy. And she decided to make this film, uh, was renamed, it was went through several versions and names. Ultimately, it was released as Queen Kelly. And the film that they show in this, in Sunset Boulevard, is scenes from Queen Kelly. Von Stroenheim uh, was the director hired by Kennedy, but Swanson so hated him, she forced Kennedy to fire him with two weeks left in production. And so they ended up delaying production, running into huge cost overruns. She lost her shirt. Her company went bankrupt. But Kennedy decided, well, I learned enough about how to produce films, so he started his own movie studio, RKO. <laughs> Another studio that'll come back at a different time. Yes, and that's why the K is Kennedy. Learn something new every day. My best secondary, and I think this needs to be mentioned, is Wilder. He is the creative genius behind the writing, staging, and production slash directing of all of this. He creates the entire world, and while... We give such credit all the time to the people that that appear in the film. He might be one of the very first overly gifted auteurs that was trying to say something a little bit more than was ever evident on screen. I very much think of him in the same way that I do like an F. Scott Fitzgerald. Never take anything in a Wilder or excuse me, Wilder film at face value. I, I can see that, and I and I do appreciate it. So, and and uh, again, and I mean, I, I I went with Holden for the reasons I indicated. I thought he was a strong performance, and it's mainly the same things I said. But I can see where Wilder would be because the more films Billy Wilder I see, the more I appreciate him as a director, and think he's probably one of the better directors we've ever had. I know we've talked about the Rushmore of directors. I think he's at least got to be in the top 10 and competing for on that list. Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I don't have any question that it, for me personally, it's going to be Spielberg, it's going to be Hitchcock, and it's going to be Wilder. And at, at where it's going to be tough for me is, is number four. Yeah, and we have a lot of movies to go. There, there are a lot of great directors and auteurs but we haven't even touched the surface of some of the ones that I, I'd love to explore. I've never seen a Fellini film. You know, that, that's just an easy example. I haven't dug through all of Ford's work. There, there are just so many great directors that trying to narrow it down. Spielberg seems kind of easy because he has such titanic films to his name. Yes. And 
I know that you love Hitchcock personally. I don't know if I, I would find it a hard argument to start separating him that he's a clear number two on the list. <sighs> All right, I understand, and it's again, it's a subjective list. Well, of course, I I'm not saying that. We'll, we'll eventually cover it. It's neither here nor there. I always have appreciated and loved directors that were such creative in their vision that they not only can visualize everything that they want, but they do it in the form of the the screenplay itself. Most of my favorite directors, to be honest, have written most of their own works. Tarantino, Chris Nolan. It's very rare that you get a lot of great directors that are able or capable of doing the writing as well, but to be able to put all of this together and with the the depth and the layering and the structure of it all. I mean, it's a very simple story on its face, but where the movie is best is in, as we read earlier, in its cleverness, in all the little notes, in all the themes that you don't think of on first viewing. Well, and and for the audience who has, in the last 78, 79 shows we've done, I think this is 79? This is 81. 81, my mistake, has been able to glean a little of my personality. And part of it is, is, you know, having come from very modest backgrounds, I've always respected those who have achieved something in part by sticking a thumb in somebody's eye, usually the establishment. And so I really, even in films, love the directors who try something different, who don't go with the convention, who kind of thumb their nose at Hollywood, the the status quo. And so Wilder uh, did that. In fact, in my research, I would point out this film so offended Louis B. Mayer that he made a comment about Wilder having should be shipped back to Germany, which in 1950 and being Jewish was uh, basically saying you should have been sent to a concentration camp. Well, it's doubly offensive because Wilder lost a lot of relatives in the Holocaust. Yes, I am. I'm very well aware. And and it's a, a huge, huge thing because Louis B. Mayer at the time was like <laughs> the king emperor. Yeah. Yes. And literally uh, at the at the post party, because half of Hollywood showed up because it's a Hollywood film. They showed up at the at the post premiere party. Wilder sought him out and in front of a huge crowd of people went up to the mayor and said, go fuck yourself, which had everybody just in complete shock because no one ever talked to mayor like that. And I don't think anyone ever would have dared, but honestly, he's one of the easiest people to villainize out of classic Hollywood. I mean, he is the predated Harvey Weinstein. Yes. All right. So then let's move to most charismatic. Uh, I had Nancy Olson. I enjoyed how fresh and naive and doe-eyed she was throughout the entire movie. It offsets, as I said, I think you have her 
in comparison to Norma and what the business does once it basically takes you like a rag and rings you out. And her fresh-faced naivete comparatively against Norma's almost rigid cynicism of aging starlet created the exact juxtaposition that you needed for this film to have that other side depth to it that makes it work, especially that second hour. Okay, interesting. By the way, you understand that not long after this film, she kind of stepped away from Hollywood in large part because she ended up marrying Alan J. Lerner from Lerner and Lowe, who did My Fair Lady. And so she moved to New York and kind of did stage work for a long time after that till she divorced Lerner. But anyway, yeah, I can see that you'd say that. For me, I went completely different uh, thing. I didn't go with a person. I went with old Hollywood. I think it brought back some of the interest in silent films. And I know that there is a uh, book on the silent film era and what uh, some of the stars were. And in fact, the, uh, the murder you had mentioned, I actually had read a book that was uh, discussed the murder and the investigation of that director. I've been intrigued by old Hollywood and the silent era and what took place. And I don't think maybe it's just me because I've done some reading on this and some study and such. I have an appreciation for it, but I don't think modern people have any clue as to how huge films were in the early 20th century up until talkies. And so it's like you're a huge star. You're on a pedestal. And then all of a sudden, everybody abandons you and forgets you. And so to some extent, this film points to that and kind of says, hey, look, we should be reminiscent, uh, hold them in some level of esteem, some level of appreciation, and understand where some of the problems come from. All right, let's move to best scene then. This is not a movie that it is easy to break up specific scenes per se. Like, for example, I have New Year's Eve down, but that covers like three different scenes. There's the first one where he's the only guest at the party. There's the one where, or the next scene where he goes to Artie's. And then the scene when he comes back and basically accepts his role because Norma has essentially created this environment where she's dependent on him, he's dependent on her. And he realizes and submits to his role. Yeah, I I understand. And I kind of have that myself. By the way, having been a fan of Dragnet with Jack Webb, seeing a smiling Jack Webb in a film is almost kind of like, huh? Because you only saw him as stoic and uncompromisingly serious. Sergeant. Sergeant? Sergeant Joe Friday. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had the monkey scene itself, and that went all the way through to the introduction leading up to Holden looking down from the room above the garage at the burial of the monkey. Yeah, so, all right, these are the, I think I have six here, and you can nominate anything that I miss. Meeting with Sheldrake, because that's also the meeting where he meets Betty. 
Gillis happens upon the mansion. So basically everything from about where he's being chased down by the creditors up through the moment you're talking about. New Year's Eve, the Paramount lot, the ending sequence, so that being where he and Betty kiss for the first time, uh, up through where Joe's actually shot, and then the final, final scene, I'm ready for my close-up. I have two others, which I separated them because of their level of impact on the overall movie. One being the clothing store, because it's at that it's at that point where Holden's finally given in to being a kept man. Then the scene where they're showing the clips of Queen Kelly, where it, it's clear she's living in the past when she was a highly thought of and highly regarded star and is having a difficult time accepting uh, the fact that the public has abandoned her. So best scene for you? Really, I it's the Queen Kelly scene, which is the scene where it says, you know, I am big. The, the pictures got small. Well, but that's earlier on where they're over the body of the dead chimp. Oh, I'm sorry that I'm my mistake, but it's a Queen Kelly scene where it's just she's so. I don't think people know what you're talking about when you when you say that. They're watching the film, the the in her personal film. Yeah, because it never says the name of the movie. They're watching an old film of hers, but it's part of that overall narration that Holden does for the film, basically describing how in the past and almost that he's living in a mausoleum to her. For me, I'm going to take the the entire sequence of New Year's Eve because I really do think that's the pivot point of this movie where it did something rather daring. I don't know how many movies really discussed suicide. And they they were really bold and on the nose when it came to she just quite out, out and out gives up on her life and that she's tried to commit suicide multiple times. She's clearly broken with reality, but... I don't know where inside of him the break happens, but that he's endeared himself enough with her that he's willing to submit to this level of manipulation and control. Uh, I, I think that between the party itself with the band and then finally you go over to Artie's, he has that scene with Betty in the bathroom and he's got that almost excitement about a intriguing screenplay and being somebody that's written stuff before when you have like a plot that you just are so fascinated by you feel the creative flowing out of you it it quite literally feels like something wants to burst out of you and you just have to get it down and that creative burst of genius you can just see is all of a sudden taken away by knowing that she's tried to commit suicide. So I I think there's so much going on in those three, I guess, scenes together that I'd put that as best. Favorite for me ended up being, though, Gillis happens upon the mansion. Again, and I think this has to be because of how I watched it the first time. That was the scene where it just, like, okay, I'm out. It was so weird for me, and I I just couldn't quite get past that, that, it, it sits in my memory a little bit, but now that I can get past it, you look at it somewhat kooky-like, and yet 
it's tough to describe. It's just got a special place for me, I guess. The scene in the movie theater with Holden narrating, to me, that's my favorite scene simply because it just shows more or less how she was living in the point of her glory. Bruce Springsteen did a, 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 a song called Glory Days where people who were popular in high school tend and go on with their lives and don't have the same level of popularity, relive high school over and over. I think there's a certain aspect of that in all of us at a point in our lives where we're popular or well-liked or we had something that we really thought was great about ourselves and then time has moved on. We tend to relive that and that's what was going on here. And so to me, that was a favorite scene because it's a microcosm of her and what a lot of people have mentally about themselves and their lives. For me, most indelible is the ending sequence. And I'll even take the I'm ready for my close up. I think that the way this movie ends, because of the way it starts, you know it's going to be Joe in the pool. You know that somehow he's got to be shot. But how do we get to that point and who does it is the driving force behind the movie. And realistically, I would say that the way this movie is drawn out, I know this is not our podcast. This is a completely different movie podcast, but they often ask the question, could this be made into a 10 episode Netflix series? That's the basic central plot line of a bunch of these crime Netflix, HBO, Hulu series right now is somebody's murdered. We don't know who it is, or we do know who it is, and we're just looking for the killer. I mean, that's a lot of these miniseries anymore, whether it's True Detective or uh, you want to talk about Mayor of Easttown or any of these other big popular shows. They kind of take off from this structure. And 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 quite frankly, the I have also the closing scene, because ultimately what happened was that Joe Holden shatters her illusion, which is that she's still a big star, that she matters, that she is just one point away from becoming a big star again and having the love of the public that she so desires. He destroys it, and it breaks her. And so she has no choice. She either destroys herself or she destroys him so she can regain the illusion. That's a good way of describing it. It's going to come back up in remaining questions for me. But before we get to that point, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Before we get to Best Funniest Lines, Dad, uh, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we have a couple. Matthew Mindler, uh, a child actor who uh, did a film, uh, Our Idiot Brother, passed away unfortunately this uh, last week unfortunately in a way that too many child actors seem to uh, have their lives ended i won't go into anything more than that just indicate that uh, it's very sad the other is um, a well-known movie tv and voice actor ed asner 
Uh, Ed Asner had been is most known for playing Lou Grant in the Mary Tyler Moore show and a show called Lou Grant, uh, which was a spinoff. Ed Asner also played Santa Claus and Elf. He was the voice actor for the lead in, in Up. He played the uh, villain in El Dorado, a John uh, Wayne film from the mid-60s. Has seven Emmys. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Ed Asner once in 1982, having a cocktail and standing and talking to him about the Screen Actors Guild, which he was president of at the time. And it allowed me to win most games of six degrees, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, that is a story I don't think you've ever told me. I was at a political fundraiser for uh, a Senate candidate, Ed Garvey, in Wisconsin. Ed had been the uh, head of the NFL Players Union. So Ed Asner volunteered to come, and we stood at the bar and had a brief conversation. I was with a group of about three other people, and we're standing around and uh, having cocktails, and he was talking about this in the Fister Hotel in Milwaukee. Yeah, two of the shows that you forgot to mention. Uh, so the more recent Netflix series, Dead to Me, he was playing an older patient in that series that Linda Cardellini was looking after. And then uh, he was also in Roots back in the 70s, the very popular miniseries of the time. But I think most people from my generation probably know him by voice as the voice actor for Up. Given that it, it was a wildly popular movie at the time, it's Pixar I think a lot of kids grew up with that. I don't know if they would picture him in the same way, but I know they would probably know the voice. Yes. So a quick moment of silence for those as we remember their work. Thank you. All right, let's go to best lines. First one I had down, Joe Gillis. Funny how gentle people get with you once you're dead. Norma Desmond, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. You see, this is my life. It always will be. Nothing else. Just us and the cameras and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Joe Gillis, last week in December, the rains came. A great big package of rain. Oversized, like everything else in California. The stars are ageless, aren't they? Norma Desmond, I'm going to be bigger than peanut butter. Betty to Joe, don't you sometimes hate yourself? Constantly. We didn't need dialogue, we had faces. Joe to Norma, I didn't know you were planning a comeback. I hate that word. It's a return, a return to the millions who have never forgiven me for deserting the screen. That's all I had. Uh, I got three more yet. Go ahead. Joe. Oh, wake up, Norma. You'd be killing yourself to an empty house. The audience left 20 years ago. Joe. There's nothing tragic about being 50. Not unless you're trying to be 25. Uh, do we know anybody like that? Are you going to leave that in? Yes. Well, she doesn't listen to the show anyway. <laughs> Norma. No one leaves a star. That's what makes one a star. Oh, yeah. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric. First up is Legacy. Do you want to go first or do you want me? Go ahead. 
So I gave it a five for the industry. I do think that the industry loves, adores, and worships this movie as one of the ultimate forms of a movie about movies. The allegories are all over the place once you dig into them. The struggling writer meets the aging starlet, cast aside, crossed with the jealousy of an aspiring writer, all mixed up with the powder keg of the Hollywood studio system of the day. I mean, that, that kind of like has so many layers to it just even in that, and that would be a pitch. There hasn't been such a celebration of Hollywood in a critique that I've ever seen. However, this is not the widely popular legacy of something like a Jaws or a Wizard of Oz that is there because of its popularity with the audience that was critically acclaimed, but also that the audience loved. I think this is a movie that is more for the industry than it is for the audience. And because of the denseness, because of how unusual it is, how structured, how layered, I think this is one that Hollywood or people around movies or movie lovers appreciate a lot more than just the general audience that likes Tom Cruise movies. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to pick on Tom Cruise particularly, just you know what I mean when I say a Tom Cruise yes. movie. So I would venture to say that maybe only 20% of the U.S. has ever seen this. Yes. And probably substantially less than that abroad. It is a historical movie that critics and industry people love, but doesn't hold the same sway with the general population. It just doesn't. In fact, I'm not sure if I said that the title of this movie, that people would automatically associate it with the movie, even people that live in L.A. So I'm going to give it a two for audience, seven overall. Legacy for Hollywood, it was not as universally accepted as a five, simply because Mayor, there were other critics. No, see, this is where I would push back on you. As far as I could tell, everybody loved this movie and why it got so much awards attention, except a few sparse people like Mayor. And frankly, if Mayor didn't like it, that means everybody else probably did. Well, I went with a 4.5, and that's and my That's number. fair. I, I think you could okay. make some slight criteria from that. But and, I, and, and quite well, frankly... But here's, it, here's where I'm going to quibble with your 4.5, and I, I don't mean to do this. I think that if you're doing it based on that standpoint at the time, you should have reserved that for impact significance since that's in the immediate, whereas this is more to the long term. I don't think the same people have that level of cynicism about this movie longer on. Well, and I gave it a little bit of disc or discount also, not only from the initial, but for the long term, because I think to some extent for a lot of the outside of, you know, the mainstream of Hollywood, this is not a film that people, oh yeah, they think of right away. This is a movie where if you say, oh, what about Sunset Boulevard? Oh yeah, that's such a great Okay, that little pause from Legacy is why I went down a little. As far as the public, I agree with you. I mean, I think part of our responsibility, why one of the reasons why I love doing this show is because, well, first of all, both of us love movies and we love the whole idea. And we really, it gives us an opportunity to be part of the motion picture industry with our little bitty influence that we have, or hopefully at some point bigger influence that we have. But anyway, the point being is, is 
it, it's partly we're trying to get people to think of films or know about films that they have not heard of or that they have heard of but never bothered to watch or that they should consider and watch because they have said. So that's why we're doing this to some extent. At least it's why I'm doing this. So I'd hope this uh, influences people to watch it, but I went with a three simply because people who are really movie buffs know the film and appreciate the film. But after that, it's like crickets. So that's a 7.5 for you? Yes. All right. So that takes it to a 7.25 average between us. Impact significance. I basically went with the same scores. I think this is the weird exception to the rule where normally we talk about movies, their impact was great in the moment and then they wane over time. Or we have complete opposites where it's the cult movies that they made no impact whatsoever when they were initially released, but kind of gain steam as they go along. To me, this one was the same as when it was released to when it was now. Glowing reviews almost universally, tons of awards nominations, including double-digit Oscars, etc., etc., etc. However, outside of the major cities, this movie had no sway with Middle America, still doesn't. Didn't perform well, still doesn't. It's probably closer to what we get with the modern Oscar films that the reviewers and the industry people like you and I love, but that no one knows of or has seen. Think about all the movies that you and I watch that no one else knows of, that we love from the last, like, five years. I know that we talked about, like, Promising Young Woman. Who the hell has seen that movie? <laughs> uh, and if you haven't, please watch it. It is so good. So I'll give a five for the industry. I'm giving no caveat. It may or be a, a sigh because he's an asshole. And two for the audience again for my seven. Well, I actually dropped impact uh, on the industry to a four simply because I think it is exactly is becoming more forgotten as time goes by. There's a certain elegance and certain people kind of put it on a pedestal to some extent if you're an insider but the public, I went with a 2.5 because I don't think the public outside of the major cities had any interest in the film. And I don't think it had any legs uh, at the time it was released. So I, that gives me a 6.5. All right. So that is a 6.75 between us. Novelty. This is a film noir, which is already niche by itself. Uh, it was bigger at the time. The, Film noir, meaning that, but it's a meta commentary on Hollywood itself, which even of movies on movies, they aren't this layered and this harsh at times. And the transition from silent to talking pictures, even before singing in the rain a couple of years later, it's novel to have included Gloria Swanson 20 years after anybody really thought of her as a star and someone who only had a handful of movies after the silent era and this is only the only one of note that she had. It's novel and it's straddling of the crime, thriller, and horror categories. I actually thought that uh, our previous guest, Hellbent for Horror, had a really great note that it, it reminds him or it has homages of Parasite to have a modern movie take on that, uh, especially with how the last scene kind of ends. But I, I think it's got 
a unique way that even other wilder noir films are not. And it's much more dense, layered, and thematic than a lot of other straightforward films of the time. And it's subject material. We already went through this. Having a chimp as your primary pet, having old starlets, having an abandoned, basically, house, having this weird relationship almost between a guy which I think Gillis is supposed to be in like his mid-30s and Swanson's supposed to be in her like 50s was not necessarily the common relationship of the day. We're talking about suicide. We're talking about mental instability. We're talking about PTSD. I mean, there are so many things about this. I was originally going to give a 9. I think I've talked myself into a 10. I had a (laughs) 9.5. I think you've convinced me to go to a 10. Yeah, I, I again, I think that the longer I talk about this, the more I realize it. And I think the only, we've maybe only given one or two other tens in the history of novelty. And the only one I can remember offhand is the other Wilder film we've done. Yes. And that was Some Like It Hot. I think that is episode six, if you want to go back and listen to that one. And I think once we do Stalag 17, we're going to have another 10. The Apartment, Double Indemnity. 10, 10. His films are unique to themselves. Yeah. He just has a knack for finding finding a voice that no one else is speaking. We're both a 10? Yes. All right, so that's a uh, pretty easy math equation. Did you need help? Yes. What would you like to offer? 10. Oh, thank you. Classicness. You always go first. Okay, I start at 5 and work up or down. I didn't find anything that was horrible about this. I mean, you know, in modern, it's not uncommon for an older woman of means to have a much younger guy at this point in time. So I ended up with a nine on classicness because I just didn't find anything that I went, "Uh, this isn't good. The only thing I could think of, well, even there, Betty's, or Nancy Olsen's character, even then, she's a female in Hollywood who's becoming a scriptwriter. So she's got a level of empowerment. Well, and for the fact that she basically tears apart and keeps him in a destitute position where he'd be the prey of Norma. Like, the situation between Joe and Norma has been more normalized as we've gone along. That has actually aged well. I would say, and it might be a point in its favor. The reason why you and I always start at different places, I know you started at five and I started at seven, is because I take the opportunity. I only give points up if it's kind of ahead of its schedule. The Let's say the classicness is it was either ahead of its time or was talking about a subject that we don't normally discuss or something else. And in a lot of ways, I could say this is a run-of-the-mill classicness. I agree with you. There isn't anything to take points off. But if that were the case, then even if I gave it one or two points, we're only at a seven from your five. Whereas opposed to mine, I give it a couple of points. We're talking about mental instability. We're talking about a break with reality. We're talking about these interpersonal relationships, which were maybe not as uncommon to the time, but certainly not talked about that were well ahead of the established audience for this, which I think Hollywood was willing to be on the front foot with, but not necessarily to middle America yet. 
where I think they'd be much more accepting now if we did basically a remade version of this. The one area that I find that it hasn't aged well is simply that I don't know if this resonates with modern America because we're so far removed from the silent era that it's hard to relate or understand the context within this movie. I mean, you and I were even talking at the top that I don't understand what a silent movie stars wealth or anything else. You had to provide context to me. I don't know if anybody else that it doesn't have the level of fervor I do for movies at 31 would be able to understand or grapple with all of the things that go on around it. I think you'd have to do kind of a BBC Sherlock type of thing and modernize the script to make it that it was somebody else who was a star and like got canceled or something like that. And so the audience left and they're trying to break with that type of reality. I think that actually could be the idea for a very good miniseries if somebody wanted to do it. But that's the one area where I just don't see if the relatability is there, even though I still ended up at the same score you did, a nine. All right, rewatchability. This one's going to be tougher. I've actually enjoyed talking about this movie more than I actually enjoyed watching it. Yeah. I think this is a talk piece. Yes. This is a movie that I would classify. I think you've said this is about a seven for you normally. The movies that you think are important that you have to go back to occasionally, maybe once a year, maybe once every two years. For me, that's roughly about a six, where it's a movie that I don't have any major issues with that I could very easily see myself going back and watching that are important that you occasionally need to rewatch because there's something new to learn. There's something more dense or something you haven't considered. It is somewhat of a film study type of movie, but where I guess does that fit? It's not one I'm going to be watching for comfort or fun. So to me, that's a six. I went with a 6.5 because it's below, it's one that I should see on a regular basis because it so explains, you know, because think about it. How many times do we see where somebody is a huge or popular TikTok star and all of a sudden they're committing suicide or they're a child actor who commit suicide. I think it so explains how people so tie their sense of self-worth to what they're doing. And when that evaporates, they have no comprehension of who they are or what they are, or even feel that they have value. And so I think this is a film that I would go back to simply to ground myself periodically because there's times where no matter how good or how bad I am, I need to review or think about things at some point in time where things were different for me or that things were just so that I have some appreciation. I mean, I, I didn't have a horrible childhood. I didn't even have a bad childhood. I just know that where I came from and sometimes where I'm feeling not as good about myself, it's necessary for me to go back and think about where I started from because it brings a new appreciation for what I've done and where I 
reached as far as being in my life. And I think this film, for me, does that. It brings me back to some sense of reality. So this is a film that's going to be on an 18 to 24 month review for me. This is a film that I would encourage other people to watch on that. So that's where I went with a seven for that. Are you changing it now? Eh, now I'll go back to 6.5, I guess. All right, so that's a 6.25 between us. We also had, for audience score, 89% on Google users, 95% for Rotten Tomato users for a 9.2 overall for that category. So just to recap, 7.25 for Legacy, 6.75 for Impact Significance, 10 for Novelty, 9 for Classicness, 6.25 for Rewatchability, and a 9.2 for Audience Score gives us a 48.45, and it ties with Ferris Bueller on the list. Okay. I know. Everything about that, you know, you'd say, okay, sure, I can buy that, up until the it tied with Ferris Bueller. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's why we enjoyed doing the show. All right, remaining questions. One, I simply put down because I think the first time you watch it, it's not immediately clear. This is not a easily explanatory movie, but I think you made it quite obvious before. Why does Norma shoot Gillis instead of herself? She wants to preserve the illusion. Yeah. The other one that I had down, does Betty marry Artie and does she ever find out about Gillis? We didn't have social media. We didn't have... Oh, no, this would be all over Variety. This would be all over the Los Angeles Times. This would be huge out there. She and that's knew. my thought, but it, it doesn't really say for certain. And given that she now loved Joe, but that has been broken, does she even go back to Artie? I think in a way that she may forego that. Maybe. It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle like that. Mm. Okay. Anyway, any remaining questions for you? Uh, no. All right. Yeah, we've probably gone on long enough, so we'll save some final thoughts uh, for the next time that we're going to be in our regular weekly schedule. The next five weeks are going to be pre-recorded. Yes, we have a James Bond film coming up, and uh, we're both you and I, I get this feeling now, because this is going to be the last time that we say this, and it's about a month from now that the next James Bond movie is supposed to come out, maybe even five weeks. I really hope they don't end up pushing it. We got the announcement today that they pushed Top Gun Maverick to next Memorial Day from November. Which means that we're going to be doing Top Gun next year. I know. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so... I don't know, you know, who knows what the situation is going to be in a month. I yeah. just, we're, we're going to do this now and hope that the movie comes out because we've been waiting basically two years to see it. Yes. And then as we told you on previous episodes, our October month is going to be Alfred Hitchcock month. I think we shared, did we share the lineup? I think so, but go ahead and give it again. So we're doing The Man Who Knew Too Much as our first week. We're doing Dial M for Murder in uh, the second week, and then Shadow of a Doubt for the third week. Our Halloween episode, Psycho. 
which I think you need to watch with mom. She's watched worse stuff at this point. Yes, I know. So, regardless, then November we're supposed to be returning kind of into the guest area. We have a few people booked for that month, and uh, we'll see if we can attract anybody else toward that Thanksgiving area. And we have a good Christmas lineup coming up for you that I know that we've already said on the show. So just some exciting things coming up that you can all look forward to. We will see you in a few weeks, and I hope everybody stays safe. Uh, If you are not vaccinated, we both would encourage you to do so. Yes, please. Or if you have the availability. I, I know that in our international audience, that may not be an option for you yet, but please consider it once it becomes available to you. I know that in America, I I would imagine other people are looking at Americans as being overprivileged with our champagne problems, that we aren't taking a vaccine that could be life-saving while other people are quite literally dying. But uh, I don't need to stand on my soapbox too long. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my closing. Next week, we are starting our month of James Bond with the movie that birthed the franchise, Dr. No, starring Sean Connery, Ursula Andress, Joseph Wiseman, and Jack Lord. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram or Twitter at gmotepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.